Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, it's me. You're a very angry, fast-moving zombie wizard, Holden McNeely. And it's me, Killian Murphy. Oh, I'm, look at me willy waggle. I just woke up. I'm buck naked. Look at me, me Killy. Look at my little Killian over here. Oh, I wish I had a da. Oh, I wish my da was here. I get, are you my da? You're going to be my da for the next 20 minutes until something horrifying happens to your face. <laughs> uh, that's right. And today we are talking about 28 Days Later, the film from uh, the, the dream team that is Alex Garland, who would go on to write and direct Ex Machina, one of my favorite sci-fi films of all time. And Danny Boyle, I mean, come on, train spotting, fucking... So many great Slumdog Millionaire. I mean, it's just this amazing duo that created, essentially revitalized a genre. Because I know everybody now today is just like, oh God, how much zombie shit can we endure? Walking Dead, we've got, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. You've got everything. For a minute, I'm glad it's died down a little bit for, because for a minute there, everything was zombies. Well, that honestly, I think 28 Days Later, you can point to that as the revitalization point, as the infection point, one might say, mm. for the zombie genre. And of course, I will just also say this. Yes, this is about a worldwide epidemic that creates a bunch of fast-moving zombies. If this sort of freaks you out in this certain uh, mm. day and time, we will be doing Animal Crossing next week. It will be <laughs> a very much get-your-mind-off-of-things episode. It's but kind of... We're doing a yin-yang here with, uh, <laughs> with current <laughs> events. We're doing a... Dear God, it's just all off the bat, like, the you know, if you think of the hallmark images of 28 Days Later, the stuff that really haunted people, uh, you know, oh, man, look at this major metropolitan area that's now completely empty. Right, Ooh, right. Isn't that spooky? And now it's like, y yeah, that's the news, bro. Yeah. And that's why we <laughs> wanted to do an episode that sort of felt it resonated to use a word that I hated that people used in acting class in college, but I'll use it here that resonates strongly with the times and then I think after this one, we're probably just going to do a bunch of stuff on like, um, I don't know, uh, pound puppies or something. Ninja Gaiden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, 28 Days Later, it was a great movie to come circle back around to. But again, though, also, it is, it is the combination of some amazing forces in filmmaking. I didn't even realize the usual suspects involved in this and uh it's quite exemplary the just all and, and the launching of a bunch of careers the you know it's just it's a really really cool story uh so rewatching it again this time first of all uh i have to say and and we'll get into why but like visually mm. it is rough around the edges and for good reason they they did that on purpose we'll talk about why they did that and what they used to get that look oh yeah no we like the technology is almost half the story with this movie yeah, and it's kind of amazing the fork and on a like a 4k tv it really stands out of like holy shit this looks rough but at the same time i i started thinking to myself but that really works for this movie because it honestly looks like news footage from that time period it looks like if you flipped on and you were learning about you know the war in Iraq or something like that it would look like that and, and that made it feel so much more real and so much more 
guttural, I feel like. Yeah, the the anxiety that they tapped into is very clear. Like, you know, uh, the director and the writer have said repeatedly, uh, they out loud say it multiple times in the director's commentary that like, oh man, you know, around this time in the early aughts, like, you know, you would turn on the news and there's all this strife and all this suffering and all these like scares, but it was always like somewhere else. It was always distant. And the idea of trying to bring that level of like, terror and disruption home was the spooky ooky idea Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. also really weird is both danny boyle and alex garland insist they're the ones who thought of fast zombies (laughs) ah that's funny and i mean but but fast zombies were a thing before them i think right with dawn of the dead i think was one of the first the dawn of the dead remake was um well that was after after, but i'm talking about the original one even had some fast zombies in it and stuff like that but it wasn't like it, it wasn't, wasn't the same. core. Yeah, that the that the running, the yeah, the running, just the feral running is like very upsetting, especially at a time when like you know uh, it was just before everything you can think of, World War Z, Left yep. for Dead, yep. all the all the rav. It's something happened that in a higher paced world, the zombies got faster too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, infected. I know there's zombie nerds out there that will fucking come. Uh, well, they won't. They won't leave their homes because they're responsible fans, but they will. Uh, berate me on Twitter for calling them zombies. Right. I am, yes, they are. They are infected with the rage virus. That's the thing, and this, of course, is all steeped in a viral epidemic, which just makes it so much more terrifying and harrowing, and and so much more real for us today. Of course, back in the day, this was like so foreign to us as a concept, actually happening to us. But now it is like more real than ever. So watching it does give you this really scary and also. Um, relevant feel, and I think that it's it can be a bit cathartic as well. I I, I really enjoyed what, rewatching this movie. It didn't stress me out. I feel like it was a bit therapeutic almost in a way. If anything, it was refreshing to see an empty grocery store. <laughs> or, I'm sorry, a grocery store that was full of products and not full of people. That yes. was like delightful. That and was it had fun. toilet paper fully in <laughs> stock. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, shall we get into it, Jake Young? Did you? So you watched it? Too. Well, actually, before we get into it. I remember watching it. I think this was back a little before I got way more in my, my horror film revitalization when I was living with one Mr. Ben Kissel. But I do remember it coming out. I do remember it setting the world on fire just a little bit, or at least the horror nerd community on fire just a little bit. Did you see it in the theater or anything like that? I'm pretty sure I watched it at home. I'm almost certain. Oh, I saw it in the theater. And uh, honestly, a lot of the things that, Stuck with me, I didn't actually, like, it didn't, yeah, it did not, I'm sorry, I'm not going to use the word resonate, hold on, let me think of a better one. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I didn't get as much feely wheelies <laughs> as uh, I did watching it again, it just kind of seemed like a horror movie where they, oh, we shot this on digital gimmick, and I'm the kind of nerd that when I find out something was shot in a novel format, I'm like, ooh, I gotta see this. Mm-hmm. Except when it's all shot on phones. Fuck you <laughs> if you think that's a selling point for a movie. Nobody cares that you <laughs> shot it on your phone. It just sounds lazy and cheap. <laughs> uh, for sure, though, you bring up a good point that it was actually a new thing at the time to shoot something in digital. Now I feel like that's completely standard, absolutely normal, but back then it was odd to not shoot on film. And of course now you're an outlier if you you, if you do shoot on film. You're an auteur, floofy, yeah. eccentric if you're like, I would like to shoot on 35 millimeters. Yeah, you're, you're, literally, you're Quentin Tarantino. That's pretty yeah. much <laughs> So, uh, yeah, all right then. Now let's get into it. So, of course, 28 uh, days... No, wait, wait, wait. One more thing. One more uh, thing. Sure. Uh, what are some, like, standout scenes? What are some, like, real oh shit things that you remembered when you were watching this movie? Uh, go, get, getting back into it. Well, definitely, and I think this is such an old trope now, but definitely the, like, keeping one as a pet in the backyard mm. thing, which I feel like definitely you see in Walking Dead and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, but, um, that, yeah, I, the, what else I would say just the whole, obviously the whole opening sequence is like (laughs) incredibly iconic waking up inside of the hospital and then just slowly discovering this empty city, uh, the messages on the message board that ended up being pretty much, uh, uh, soothsay for what would happen with nine 11 and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'd say that that stuff mainly. And then any time, I mean, all, all of the 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 running up the stairs scene was really solid. That was that was very tense when they're trying to get up to this building. Just the whole concept of somebody being holed up uh, flights and flights above and you have to like try to get to them and 
uh, you know, sending out the signal flares. What about you, Jake? The way they shot the infected, really, I forgot how effective that was. The way that, like, they're twitching and vomiting blood and, like, their sh- bloodshot eyes. It's such it's such a more immediate danger mm-hmm. than, like, st- even Walking Dead. Even, like, you know, you can get the, the decay. You can get the, the gore differently. But just the just the way that the infected were different than standard zombies and still kind of stand out as a unique, like, kind of just guttural expression of violence was really, really good. I also forgot how, like, funny and charming the movie can be at times. Right. You know, Brendan Gleeson just changes the whole tone of the movie once he's introduced. And, like, the the emotional turn when he's gone is, like, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. I completely misremembered the, uh, the military characters. In my head, hmm. they visited, like... A full army base. I don't know why. I just haven't revisited this movie. But it really is just a house with like eight guys with guns yeah. when they finally get there. Which is and so I re- sketchy. I, I had to like readjust. Yeah, it's and which makes it so it's so scary because you're like we don't know what we're heading, <laughs> but but you have to just trust people and go with it. Unfortunately, when you're like the few survivors. But yeah, that was a whole scary situation because it's like, what? A, what? A, you know, they're so vulnerable in that in that scenario. Hey, Holden, do you, do you think the real monster is man? <laughs> what if what if what if we're the real monster? What if we are the Walking Dead? Has anyone done a thing about that? <laughs> yeah, it is funny how and Danny Boyle. There's a quote from Danny Boyle when talking about the new sequel. Someone asked him, "Can you like? Cause he has an idea for a third movie?" And he, when asked to share a little bit of his story idea, he laughed and said, no, because they'll end up in The Walking Dead. So, <laughs> and you can see that, honestly, every little, you could you could take a one-to-one from this movie to a moment in Walking Dead, probably, every single step of the way. So, all right, here we go. Let's get into it. Starting off with the life and times of Alex Garland. This guy rocks my socks. I fucking love this dude. Born in London, England in 1970 to a psychologist mother and a political cartoonist father, he had a Nobel Prize winning uh, biologist grandfather who made major strides in the field of organ transplants. That guy's name was Peter Medawar. I thought that was an interesting piece of trivia. But either way, at a young age, he ends up traveling quite a bit and he... First goes to India when he is 17 years old on a school trip. He's frequently visiting Southeast Asia many times a year throughout his early 20s. He ends up going to a private school and then graduating from the University of Manchester with a degree degree in history of art. He was initially going to be a cartoonist like his father. His father, again, was a political cartoonist. And then he realized how um, shitty and impossible it is to become a professional cartoonist. It's not so. as Luke, as someone who made a, a run of trying to be a professional cartoonist in a 18 different past lifetimes. Uh, yeah, it's not very viable, unless, especially through like standard publication. Well, you just think about how many notable ones there are. And then you just think about how much staying power you have as a cartoonist if you get a regular gig. So therefore, it's kind of like voice acting, like. The people who get the regular gig doing it, they they're not going to leave until they <laughs> die. Like they're they're there until they're done. And I think that's for sure. And then of course by this point too, that you know, com- cartoons are probably already declining. You know, in terms of, as, in terms of an industry, I think it's it's also just a brutal. Uh, you know, you're isolated. You're working. If you're doing it right, you're working your balls off. And then when all is said and done, you don't even know if what you did was any good until people read it. And then the next day, it's just gone. Right. So he likes travel and he likes writing and that sort of thing. So he gets the idea of becoming a foreign correspondent journalist since he, you know, been traveling all over the world. And in trying to write about nonfiction events, he's getting bogged down. He's like, I do, I he starts to enjoy taking these nonfiction events and playing with them and adding fiction to them and and making things up around the edges of, of these stories that he starts collecting. And then he realizes he likes to play in Flu Flu La La Land a lot more than real, real normal town. So, I'm sorry, hold on. Where is Flu Flu La La Land? Flu Flu La La Land, it exists way up in the clouds. Um, <laughs> there is a queen that guards it, and she is seemingly nice at first, but she's actually secretly evil. Uh, so... Instead, he begins writing, uh, and at the age of 23, he starts his first novel, The Beach. Who remembers The Beach? I need to read this book, by the way. I didn't realize that. I always thought it was just like a weird, Leonardo DiCaprio's weird follow-up to Titanic. And like, I never even saw The Beach, but I remember 
uh, it just being like a weird movie that it didn't do super, super hot, I think. But- so, okay, here's the deal with the beach. And uh, I almost wanted to name drop it when you were like, the unbelievable duo of Alex Garland and Danny Boyle. Right. Look at the, like, well, they did have a they go did. at first. Sort and it of. it did not go well. Sort of. But I feel like with, with that, it was because 28 Days Later was their indie film. I mean, it was made on a budget of $5 million. Cheap, 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 cheap. Whereas The Beach was a big studio shit show production. In fact, this was the movie that made Danny Boyle. And we're jumping ahead a little bit. I want to like go back to his process of writing the novel The Beach. But I will say, this definitely was the movie that made Danny Boyle be like, oh, this is what it's like to deal with annoying studio people. I miss train spotting. (laughs) So Alex Garland's uh, book, The Beach, is really more about the mindset of like Gen X European backpackers. Yes. Which is like an entire culture that just, you know, is not as prevalent in America. It's not as easy to travel freely. It's not as easy to get to that side of the world. Uh, Most Americans like kind of just end up going to college and like don't really have that kind of rumspringa time in their lives. Uh, it's it's a more rare, more affluent thing to go backpacking like that, where all, it was way more common for Europeans in that time. And the idea of like this this Gen X disaffection and, you know, the the promise of like a more utopian, stress free world on the other side of the globe was like very appealing and very of the time. The, the whole book is about how that breaks down, how mm-hmm. compromise and other people can corrupt what are noble ideals. And it was a bestseller in Britain. And the way it gets adapted in America, the studio basically shoehorns Leonardo DiCaprio hot off the heels of Titanic. In fact, this caused this caused a lot of problems between Danny Boyle and uh, Ewan McGregor. We'll talk more about Danny Boyle's career leading up 28 days later. But actually, they the studio forced Boyle to replace Ewan McGregor, which caused a huge uh, rift between Boyle and you and McGregor for years and years. So that's the kind of situation we're in with this with this studio film. So they make it in so they yeah, so now the main character is American. They kind of uh instead of it being like a, a push of difference between like philosophy between characters, it kind of becomes a grand conflict with like a big bad and like explosions. And uh I think Danny Boyle actually says like at a certain point when I was filming, I was like I don't even like any of these characters anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was too heady for Leonardo DiCaprio fans. It mm-hmm, wasn't mm-hmm. effective as a story because it didn't really resonate because that whole like backpacker mystique isn't the same for American audiences. And the whole thing is just a big expensive mess. Yeah. So going back to Garland writing The Beach, he he actually did not fancy himself a writer ever. So the success that he got from The Beach was really threw him off. He said, the truth is I hadn't grown up Really wanting to be a writer, the whole thing was a weird aberration in some ways, and I didn't feel personally connected to the level of success I had with it. This was also largely due to the fact that it came out very low-key. He was moving on to his next project. He was writing another work. I believe that was The Tesseract. And this book comes out with very little publicity in 1996 and becomes extremely popular almost entirely via word of mouth. It, it, as you mentioned before, it puts him on the map as a new voice of Generation X. It gets him on Vogue's most eligible bachelor's list of that year. And he puts out his second novel, The Tesseract, with a contract for two more books that was negotiated on the huge success of The Beach. Garland said, this was a lucrative deal. I thought about it hard and realized, I actually don't want to do this. Take, <laughs> take the money back. People around me thought I was insane. I think the publishers thought I was insane. And so, yeah, he he uh, he walks away from this incredibly lucrative book deal and decides to do something else. He didn't want to be stuck in, in writing these books. He says, I didn't like being inspected. I didn't like being a name attached to a book. I just found it weird. So I gave the money back. I moved into film. I remember I had a, hu- a lunch with one of the publishers, and they said, well, what are you doing? I said... I started writing a zombie film. <laughs> so that's where we are with Alex Garland before we move on to Danny Boyle's career up until this point. But I will say I'm very interested in reading The Beach after doing this research. It seems very I'm less interested in watching the movie still, but very interested in reading that book. And uh, yeah, and I'm just what a ballsy move. <laughs> like I can't yeah. I would never make a move like that in a million years. I would be so scared to say, "No, take all this crazy money back. I'm not going to write two more books even though I'm already have this huge <laughs> success as a writer." And honestly, he probably would have put out shit. 
You know, the Tesseract Tesseract was was not as strong, according to most, as the beach. And yeah, he was ready to move into film. So Danny Boyle. Oh, Danny Boyle. Oh, Danny Boyle. <laughs> Born in 1956 in Radcliffe, Lancashire, England, to Irish parents and raised Catholic. He was an altar boy for eight years, and his mother actually wanted him to become a priest, but was actually, actually persuaded by a priest to not transfer into the cemetery, <laughs> uh, cemetery seminary, which I think is My very My boy, I don't know how to tell you this. You're too straight for this. Boyle said, whether he was saving me from the priesthood or the priesthood from me, I don't know. But quite soon after, I started doing drama. It's basically the same job, poncing around, telling people what to think. So he ends up going to Thornley Salesian College in Bolton and then studies English and drama at the University College of North Wales. At age 21, he fell in love with film after a viewing of Apocalypse Now, which makes a lot of sense because a lot of the things he does, it's very uh, psychological, very dark, very twisted. These are the types of movies we see from him. Start, he started out after school uh, at the Joint Stock Theater Company, and then the Royal Court Theater in 1982, where he starts directing plays, which led to directing plays of the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is very prestigious, uh, for sure. And in 1987, he moved over to television, producing TV films for BBC Northern Ireland, as well as directing TV show episodes. And this is where we get his film debut, Shallow Grave, a black comedy about three friends who discover that their roommate is dead along with a bunch of cash. And this becomes the, the most commercially successful British film in 1995. And that is the success that leads him to train spotting about heroin addicts in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, I first of all, before we get more into this, I have the, a funny story about this. I, I've told this several times. So there I was doing heroin, right? So yeah, I was trying heroin for the first time, and I just thought this is hilarious. No, I <laughs> back when I was like in, I forget what. Well, I guess 1995. I'd have to do the math on that. Either way, I was too young to watch Train Spotting. My father rented it on VHS. I don't think he meant to do this, but maybe he did this on purpose. He was like, son, you are not allowed to watch this movie. And then like, (laughs) what is it about my forbidden box of mystery that compels you so? And then like right after that, he was like, now I'm leaving for three hours. (laughs) Like literally, it's like, I'm going to be gone for three hours. Bye. And like, of course I put on the movie and watched it. And it blew me away. And I honestly, as much as it fucked with me, I absolutely loved it. I'm a huge, huge fan of that film. It is, of course, an adaptation of a book by Irvine Welsh and hugely puts him on the map and around the world in the U.S. I remember Train Spotting hit hard. I did you do you remember watching that growing up or? I actually never watched it. Are you serious? Oh my I god. I know. I'm ashamed. I wanted to I wanted to watch it before we recorded, but then Doom and Animal Crossing came out and then I needed to make a sandwich. Just one more hat. It's better than all the cocks in all the world. I actually I really want to watch Shallow Graves almost Me too. more because Me too. it's a kind of a proto train spotting. Mm-hmm. It's got uh, you know, Ewan McGregor and Christopher Eccleston in it mm-hmm. and like I kind of, I, that's like more of a, I kind of want to see that era of British like culture from that perspective more so than um, watching Ewan McGregor climb into a toilet as, and that's the metaphor for heroin addiction. So after Train Spotting, you've got A Life Less Ordinary, the lesser praised black comedy about two angels sent to Earth to matchmake a kidnapper and his hostage. Also starring Ewan McGregor. So also at this starring, point... That's, it's, that's why I was telling you about this rift. Because originally, Ewan McGregor was supposed to be the protagonist of The Beach, so which comes after A Life Less Ordinary. Uh, and so that causes this weird rift. They have since patched things up. It was an interesting little sidebar to this research. But I think you can see the trajectory. It's like small British indie, small British indie, small British indie. He His career explodes. And then he's got to deal with this studio stuff. And he's getting into a fight with his his like main actor that he loves to work with. It's It's unfortunate. So The Beach is also a shoot that is filled with injuries and controversy of they, they like altered land on this island and then there were all these protests about it there were all these last minute recastings like i said it was uh it was a bit of a disaster it was actually financially successful but not very much so critically but of course obviously it's going to be financially successful because leonardo DiCaprio was i mean he's still massive but massive at the time and a total teen heartthrob so of course 
you've got this movie about backpackers and this island and it's starring this you know teen this heartthrob guy like of course they're all gonna rush out to see it but it's it's it was just an unfortunately awkward stage for leo because he wasn't the the you know he wasn't the gilbert great boy he wasn't like the child actor he wasn't the teen heartthrob anymore and he wasn't yet like the uh inception post scorsese dicaprio right so this was like this was pupil you know like uh you know when a when a bug becomes like a gross, writhing uh, brown nugget. Ew. This is a pupil DiCaprio Why? who had yet to emerge as an adult butterfly. I have to talk to you about your analogy. What? Everyone loves etymology. <laughs> Everyone loves bugs. Hey, Mom. First things first. Thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So now we get to creating 28 Days Later. Garland says the key relationship for writers in film is producers. Because those are the first two people involved and the ones who work on it intensely in a private way without the big machinery of film. And we have not mentioned one other key player in this situation. It is not just Alec Garland. It is not just Danny Boyle. It is also the producer, Andrew McDonald. He did The Beach. He he did Shallow Grave and Trainspot. He's obviously Danny Boyle's guy. And, uh, yeah, and it is Garland who approaches him. Apparently, this is interesting that you say that they d- differ on who... Uh, came up with Fast Moving Zombies, but uh, according to what my my sources, Alex Garland approaches Andrew McDonald about an idea he had for running zombies, and he writes a first draft of 28 Days Later, shows it to McDonald, who sees the potential, but notes that the formatting is wrong and the scenes are overwritten, so he gives him a sample script to work off of, because, of course, this is Garland's first attempt at writing a script, so... And he's a novelist yeah. at this point. So he's got no idea what's going on. I'm sorry, an estranged novelist, which is a great professional title to have. An estranged novelist. And a novelist who felt like he fell over backwards into becoming a novelist. So, like, like even, yeah, he's sort of just... Th- this guy kind of makes me very jealous, because he's just sort of like, <laughs> I guess I'll do scripts now, and then he writes 28 Days Later. Are you kidding? So, anyways, uh, Garland says of switching from novels to screenplay writing, it was a bit like novel writing in the very early days, where I would be looking at it in a mechanical, structural way. You know, interior, exterior, all the stuff like that. But also economy, where you can come out of a scene and where you can come in and all sorts of things that play differently than they do in books. So, And he always and he talks about, even in the books, in the way that he wrote, that I feel like that he felt like he was very successful, was he was, he was just very good at like keeping it moving from the very beginning when it comes to the beach. Like it just, his writing style just never stops. Like he never just lingers on anything for too long and it keeps you gripped. So Garland enjoyed, uh, by the way, for inspiration, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead as a child and was reminded of this while playing the Resident Evil series, which started coming out around the time The Beach came out. So Garland is actually quite a gamer and yeah, really dug Resident Evil had a revitalization of Resident Evil like reawakened his love for the zombie genre really which I think is fantastic. He I mean the uh the opening scenes from uh, 28 days later where you know it's Killian is uh you know shouting hello and that's like pretty much from Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's almost like it's almost on a sound wave like level the same hello from <laughs> Dawn of the Dead. Or Day of the Dead? I forget. Uh, it's Dawn of the Dead. Are you, oh wait, Day of the Triffids? We're never going to get into Day of the Triffids. No, absolutely. What is Day of the Triffids? Day of the Triffids is another, like, invasion movie, but, um, in, you know, it was just as 
influential as the zombie movie in America, but it was quintessentially British. And instead of zombies, they were weird alien plant things with little stingy necks. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that that was a key influence for Garland as well. (laughs) Uh, They look so dumb, but like you could make a British Gen Xer shit their pants if you showed them like a Venus flytrap mixed with a pineapple. And they'd be like, oh, shit, it's a fucking trippin'. (laughs) Well, that sounds also in the sci-fi realm. Garland was a big fan of The Omega Man, which is a film in 1971 about a doctor who is the only survivor of an apocalyptic war caused by an experimental vaccine that created a bunch of deformed homicidal maniacs. There's, there's not, I think Omega Man's huge, huge. So this is around the time Boyle gets involved. Boyle said, with all of the films that we've done, we try and take a genre and fuck with it a bit. We love doing that. It helps market the films and the studios or whoever is distributing the film love that and it contacts a mainstream audience, which is part of the deal for us. We want the mainstream audience and then we want to blow the genre apart so you don't get it. So the zombie fans who show up for this aren't just going to see a gore fest zombie film. They will get something in addition and I think that's a great dynamic really. He also said, we wanted a horror zombie film, but we also wanted it to be more emotional than horror films normally are. We wanted you to genuinely care about these people. And I do think that they reached more for that, especially with our main character's uh, tragic scene with his parents, you know, discovering his parents dead, those sorts of things. Again, it's, it's so hard to not, it's so hard to look at this and unpack what it was doing for the first time because of how many iterations on it have happened since. And to the point where I'm not sure if this was a first, like, yeah, the whole, the mother or the father daughter relationship, the, the tragedy scene in that. I think these things were, again, I feel like we've seen them so much in the walking dead and, Mm -hmm. and all of these other works that came after it. But I'm pretty sure this sort of thing was being established in this film. There's definitely the emotional psychological, aspect i think reigns really heavily in the in right? 28 days later like in a way that it's novel in this film a little bit. i mean it's the the most baseline reading of the movie is literally killian looking for father figures throughout the movie he's younger you know this is a younger man who is lost and is trying to get a hold of any sort of hierarchy and the most immediate hierarchy is the hierarchy of the of the he, he wakes up and the first place he finds some semblance of authority is the church and he sees the the priest, yes, the father, literally the father, yes, who is completely infected and attacks him. He catches up with, uh, is it Selena? Is the character uh, and Mark? And Mark is the toughest nail survivor guy. And he immediately and he's giving him the information about what went wrong. And now he's following Mark, and now that's his father figure. He gets murdered very brutally. Mm-hmm. They end up finding <laughs> uh, the father and daughter, Brendan Gleeson's character. And he gets like, uh, they, together, they almost have a semblance of like a cohesive family unit. That's gone. He ends up following uh, the major. He ends up, you know, literally kind of thinking like we did it. And uh, Christopher Eccleston's character only to be betrayed by them. And he only achieves like fulfillment when he just takes action for himself. When he stops, tra- when he learns to be self-dependent yeah. outside of a broken system which right. you know a million different zombie essays could be written because you you have that moment where they're like there is no governor and he's, and he's just like there has to be a government there has to yeah. be <laughs> there's somewhere right they're like underground or something and it's like no dude there's nothing <laughs> parenting you right now yeah for sure for the sure. queen ate the prime minister's face on live television <laughs> Also, for inspiration, Danny Boyle and team turned to the Ebola virus and read The Hot Zone by Richard Preston about the person who carried Ebola from Africa to Washington. Boyle said it's an airport kind of page turner, but it's phenomenal what happens. And the manifestation of the disease in the film, the sickness, is all based on Ebola with a bit of It's a of hemorrhagic fever, so you know, yeah. it causes a lot of open bloody, you know, bloodening of the eyes and mucous membranes. So the idea that the infected have like bloodshot eyes and are like yeah. literally vomiting blood everywhere is straight out of Ebola. They threw in a little bit of rabies, by the way, with a little bit of rabies. In it's well. it's so clearly Ebola influenced that they in this in the tie-in comics where they do the origin of the rage virus, they literally say that uh, the idea of the rage virus in the tie-in comics is a lab for the government was working on a aggression inhibitor 
that would pacify the population and lead to a decrease in violent crimes or, you know, control, because that's what governments do. And the mad scientist who was in charge of it was like, oh, great news. Uh, I couldn't figure out a way to distribute the aggression inhibitor. So I grafted it onto the Ebola virus. I'm just going to release it. (laughs) Also tied in into the comic, uh, I don't know how canonical it is, but the co-creator of the rage virus was so uh, disgusted by with what his lab was doing that he joined and helped organize the animal rights group that uh, released the chimp in the beginning of the movie. Oh, interesting. Interesting. But, you know, that's that's tie in comics. Right, right, right. So let's get into this camera camera work, visual style. First, we have to introduce the man behind it all, Anthony Dodd Mantle. Did you find the interview with him on American Cinematographer? No, but I'm glad you did. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, well, give, give me give a little background, then we'll get into it. So, he, he serves as director of photography, a.k.a. cinematographer in this situation. He is British, but he started out actually working with a lot of Danish directors in the Dogma 95 filmmaking movement that started in, in 1995. And it included directors like Lars von Trier and was predicated on, I love all this stuff, by the way, this is an artistic film movement, predicated on traditional values of story, acting, and theme over special effects and tech in order to take back the power for the director as artist as opposed to the studio. And Mantle is known to popularize the, quote, action-style handheld camera. And that is why the portion, that's why Boyle pulled him in, and that is why portions of the film are shot with the Canon XL1 digital video camera, which Mantle was well-versed in at the time and is smaller and more maneuverable than film cameras. So if you're thinking about, like, uh, digital cameras, you might be thinking of a RED camera, you know, one of those 4K, 8K digital cameras. Sony makes them. All these major digital cameras that we now use to shoot modern blockbusters, like every Marvel movie, uh, throw that out the fucking window. Do you remember (laughs) when you were a child and your dad had a camcorder with the cool night shot that you used to shoot (laughs) bad Blair Witch parodies with? Yes. The Canon XL1 cost $3,000 at the time, which put it squarely in the prosumer uh, level of equipment, and it used mini DV tapes. Wow. Those little cassettes that your dad, your actual father, used in his camcorder. If you had a suburban home in the early 2000s, you had a camera that used the same format of media as 28 Days Later. It was highly compressed, massive interpolation, and... You know, using shooting things with it took so much more consideration and time and effort because if you if you had a bad think of a bad flip cam from slightly later in the 2000s, nothing looked right. You know, you shot outdoors, the sky would be washed out. You shot indoors, there'd be artifacts and all the shadows. The things that made this movie nowadays look like horrible gave it a little bit of documentary realness because between. TV documentaries, TV news, a ton of stuff was being shot in this format, so it felt authentic, but the real reasoning behind using this format, they justified it in post as, you know, trying to make it more realistic, more newsy, but the real version is to get the shots of abandoned London, to get the shots of the M1 highway perfectly uh, devoid of cars, which is the most busy roadway in all of Great Britain. Yeah, They needed... To shoot as much coverage as possible as in as little as a time as possible. Yeah, for sure. So while in 35 millimeter, in standard, you know, film stock, they could get one setup and it would take forever, and then they could film one shot. In that same time frame, they could set up eight different Canon cameras, all shooting different angles of the same meticulously set up empty set yeah. and get the coverage they needed. It's 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 insane to think that there was a it was shot on a budget of five million dollars and yet they got these crazy empty city stuff moments it, just in general right that it wasn't some huge blockbuster they've been talking about how this was just before nine eleven that they never would have been able to get these shots after nine eleven they never would have been able to like block off that amount of space and 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 get these things the way that they did here's a big meaty quote from Danny Boyle about their use of the digital format and everything. We wanted it to feel different in texture from normal film because it's an apocalypse. You can use a different hue because nobody knows what things will look like if everybody's killed or there are no cars. 
So we talked about having a different texture, which we got with the DV. We would tickle the color of the film occasionally to create a slightly strange universe. Against that, I wanted this enormous energy from those who are infected, which I was going to get through this particular menu on the camera, which allows you to alter the frame rate. Things appear to be speeded up, but actually it's real time. So you kind of snatch at fast images like falling rain or a man running, snatching at them in a slightly unreliable way. The idea is that you can't quite trust your usual sense of judgment about perception, depth, and distance when dealing with the infected. I was determined to do that. Although there was quite a lot of opposition at one point, it was thought that it would make the film look very odd, which it does in a way, in a cool way, though. He mentions the rain, and it really stands out during that that rain sequence because you can see every individual droplet of rain because of the way they slowed the frame rate down. It was actually one of the best stylistic decisions in the movie. Sure. I thought. Oh, 100%. Yeah, the way they adjusted the frame rate for when the infected are in the shot so that they up the shutter speed. So there's less motion blur on the infected as they move around. So what? even though it's still the same frame rate going by, the choppiness makes it look like the zombies are moving like almost faster than human. They're like erratically jolting around in between each frame. And this is a fun trick. By the time, by the end of the movie where uh, Killian has to, you know, kind of become almost a monster himself, he's ended up getting shot with that same fast shutter. Uh-huh. So his movements are infected-like. And it's, you know, the the movie is literally telling you through the format of the camera like, Killian is, in fact, is bestial. He has, like, evolved beyond a, a blurry human. He is, he is infected with rage in his own way. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the little choppiness uh, of the rain is really well done. Uh, this is, here are two quotes from Dodd Mantle that stood out to me in his interview with American Cinematographer. You can read the whole interview online on the American Cinematographer website. Thank you, because I am too curious. Now that you, is this guy like a psycho or something? Uh, just, it, just, it just really sets out how much effort this was to make this film work on these cameras. Uh, the film had a lot of night scenes, and I remember Danny asking, so how are you going to pull this off? Dodd Mantle recounts. I said, I'm, oh, he's like half Scandinavian, right? So I'm like, I see it. I'll just put the lights on. And he said, well, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, because in this movie, society has fallen apart. All the electricity is gone. Uh, that slowly sunk in. And after about three days, I realized I was in hell. <laughs> Talking about when they were filming in London. Uh, these sequences necessitated the use of as many as eight Canon XL1 DV cameras to cover all the angles, allowing shots to be made as quickly as possible. I placed them all and framed them all, Dodd Mantle recalls. It was very difficult because we had to deal with walkie-talkies, <laughs> screaming commuters just out the frame, police asking when we'd finish six or eight people operating cameras. Even my gaffer and the producer, Andrew McDonald, were operating some of the cameras. I was trying to walkie-talkie T-stops knowing that they were all at different angles in accordance with a constantly rising sun. In short... It was hell. <laughs> he keeps invoking hell as the experience of shooting this I mean, movie it, with these cameras. It sounds like a, an insane film process. And to make it even more insane, Danny Boyle, not really a big storyboard fan, really likes to shoot off, off the hip. <laughs> he said, I'm not a great storyboard fan. I know everyone is different. But for me personally, I much prefer making things up on the day. You can't do that because... There are so many people relying on you for decision making, but you can sort of pretend to know what you were doing and everyone feels confident. But I love leaving things as late as possible. It's very exciting. But the bigger the budget, the less you can do. That's part of the pact with Satan. Again, invoking hell. (laughs) Uh, It should be noted that this movie was shot sequentially, uh, barring a couple of reshoots and uh, pickups that we'll get into later, uh, which kind of lends itself to the organic kind of emergence of the characters and the way the story kind of plays out and themes kind of arise more naturally, I think. Uh, you know, because if you're filming sequentially, the actors kind of know what they did yesterday and they know what they're going to do tomorrow and they know where they, you know, it's easier to stay in the character's headspace. True, absolutely. So going back to these crazy 
shoots to get Westminster Bridge, Piccadilly Circus, Horse Guards Parade, and Oxford Street all emptied out. Normally incredibly busy spaces. They mostly shot in early morning before sunrise on Sundays with the crew closing off sections of street for for minutes at a time and would only have until about 45 minutes after dawn. Boyle said, we literally turned up and spent a couple of minutes filming in each place, but with 10 cameras, and we'd choose the angles, set them up very carefully so we knew that when we were uh, cut them together, it would make you feel like it was rolling on and that you were walking around the city with him and there was no one there. You immediately began to pull the audience into this strange new universe, really. So when the attacks come, you feel vulnerable as well because you've been lured in. The M1 motorway scenes were done similarly in very limited periods of time with a mobile police roadblock, slowing traffic enough to leave a long section of road empty enough to just get a couple of shots. The crew actually got that overturned bus in place, then removed it in 20 minutes. That's which amazing. Is fucking crazy. I did like the idea of the rolling roadblock. The idea yeah. that they didn't actually cut the street, the the highway off. They just had police behind them slowing things down just enough and then catching yeah. up just quickly enough that it didn't cause a total traffic. Jam. Yes, crazy. And shit. of course, they had a million cheap digital cameras all shooting what ended up being like a minute of footage. Right. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So the, the mansion was actually Trafalgar Park, which is also known as Trafalgar House, which dates back all the way to the 1700s. The music room, which is, is actually painted by renowned Italian artist Cipriani, and main hall were barely touched set design-wise. It was just so perfect. And the ruins were shot at Waverly Abbey, which goes all the way back to the 1100s. I was about to move on to editing. Did you want to talk about the reshoots or whatever before we did that? Just the idea that... They were shooting sequentially, and there's a lot of deleted scenes. There's stuff like uh, there was a meticulously shot scene of Killian's character cutting his hair and shaving himself more so than there was in the final cut of the movie. And that caused a bunch of headaches in uh, for reshoots and for the extra endings. He had to wear a wig the whole time. And uh, we'll get into what happened with the ending when we get there. Sure. So the editor on the project, very important work. Obviously, if you watch this film, the editing is so, so, especially with those zombie attack moments. The, the editor was Chris Gill, who had been working in TV since the early 80s and moved over to film in the early 2000s, starting with 28 Days Later. And this unique technique was used for scenes involving the affected, described by Boyle as, which is one of the reasons that I hired him, uh, where he edits and compresses time. So I'll shoot you going to that door to open it. And the way he edits it, he will get you to that door far more quickly than is humanly possible. For a film like this, it makes you uneasy. And I felt that was a wonderful quality. When you get a good partnership with an editor, you then start to shoot with an understanding of how he is going to cut it, which I think is... Very clear, especially anytime there is a chase sequence, a zombie attack, the editing is so bananas in such a good way. It's it's so tense and so like electrifying. The zombie actors were actually brought in through a well, not okay. The infected were brought in from a special UK talent agency that hires huh. retired uh, Olympic athletes, gymnasts, soccer players, anything that requires like physical skills, but not on a professional level. So to get that like real manic, intense running, all these uh, actors were physically trained. And this is actually a, a weird bit of, of trivia. Um, the preacher, the priest from the opening shot uh-huh. was an actor named Toby Sedgwick, who actually has a 
deep background in theater choreography and movement acting. And so what we now associate with that infected uh, movement style, the hallmarks, the twitching, the gurgling, the coughing, the grasping, uh, that exact pattern of movement was kind of done on the fly by Toby. And they loved it so much that they then used him to teach the other infected actors Mm -hmm. afterwards to kind of, you know, uh, standardize what the symptoms of infection look like. Mm -hmm. Just to prove that he is, in fact, a very talented uh, movement and choreographer director. Uh, He got a BAFTA award. He got tons of awards for doing the life-sized horse puppets in War Horse. Oh, wow. Which, if you can find footage of it, is a real remarkable work of uh, stagecraft. I just, it's honestly worth the Googling. What else are you going to do? Oh, and lastly, the bodies in the, in the abbey or in the, in the, in the church were uh, college students that were paid no money and all they got was a cup of tea to just kind of spend an afternoon lying in a pile. Oh, my God. So the music is actually also a very important element to this movie and a very interesting one. I'm not shocked to find out that it's composed by John Murphy, British self-taught multi-instrumentalist musician. First hit was Leon the Pig Farmer, but I know him as the guy who did the soundtrack to Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels by Guy Ritchie. That definitely, I remember, I had that soundtrack and I remember the score so well. It's such an explosive movie score and everything so yeah it makes a lot of sense the soundtrack also features tracks from brian eno granddaddy and blue states the those bands and uh, most notably there is a super edited version of a song by post-rock band godspeed you black emperor called east hastings that's the desolate theme while yes. killian murphy's walking around that's the whole slow build to the first attack theme that you hear that is so wonderfully done and paced And it's actually not on the soundtrack because Boyle could only get the rights for the film as the band normally does not license their work for features. I will say the the sound, the main theme, the one that you most associate with 28 Days Later has been reused in a bunch of other movies. It was used as the theme for uh, the character. It was basically Nicolas Cage's theme in in, uh, Kick-Ass. Uh-huh. Yep. It was used in a trailer for Terminator Dark Dark Fate. I'm sorry, I got so bored reading the name of the movie uh, that nobody remembers existed. <laughs> no, I, honestly, Mary, even through the lens of remote recording, I beseech you, please play a couple of bars of the track In the House in a Heartbeat. It just gets you in that zone so hard. Yeah, as described by Boyle, the Godspeed You and the other song, he says, you are trapped in the headlights. It's too late. You can't get out. It's getting louder and louder. Mm. I think it was great. All right, let's talk about this cast. A bunch of (laughs) no-name actors at the time. Cillian Murphy was not a household name at the the time. Uh, Started out playing music through his teens and ended up studying law in college, which led him to the theater. His acting debut was in a play called Disco Pigs that became successful enough for a small tour leading to an agent, and Murphy left school and his band to pursue it. He performed in plays and indie films before getting cast in 28 Days Later as the casting director was impressed with him because she had seen him in the film adaptation of Disco Pigs. So Disco Pigs really launched his shit in so many ways. Like, it's kind of ridiculous. Naomi Harris started out at just nine years old. She, of course, plays um, Selena. Started out at just nine years old in a remake of the sci-fi series The Tomorrow People and went on to train at the Bristol Old Vic Theater, which is a very prestigious theater school. However, 28 Days Later was her first big film role as well, and she's also going to be in Venom 2, dog. So She's playing Shriek. <laughs> oh, she's also the new Money Penny in the uh in the new James Bond movies. She was in Skyfall. She was yeah, she's going to be in the next one. Uh Brendan Gleeson who plays Frank he uh, has had a prolific film career, starring in supporting roles in films like Braveheart, Gangs of New York, and Paddington 2. He's also the lead in, in Bruges, which oh, everybody loves. Movie. Yeah, absolutely. 
Megan Burns, Megan Burns, who plays... The daughter, Hannah. Hannah. There you go. I just wanted to get the name right. The daughter only starred in one feature before 28 Days Later, uh, which was called Liam, which had impressed Danny Boyle so much that he cast her as the daughter. She has only done one other short film after 28 Days Later because she went on to go by Betty Curse and pursue a pop rock career. (laughs) That's the singer. So why not? Yeah, go for it. It's England. Anyone can have a hit single there. It's right? uncanny. Christopher Eccleston, who played Major Henry Eccleston. Eccleston, sorry, who played Major Henry West, you may recognize as the ninth version of the Doctor on BBC's Doctor Who. Just this once, nobody dies. Just this once. Back in 2005, he got some of his early film work though in Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave. Then you, uh, lastly, you have Noah Huntley. There are, of course, other uh, actors. You completely but. blew past his amazing uh, turn as Malekith in the worst Marvel movie ever. <laughs> what movie is Thor that? Thor the Dark World's Malekith, the villain we all know and love. <laughs> uh, lastly, I have Noah Huntley, who played Mark early in the film. He's had a prolific film career as well. Started out in films like Event Horizon, though, before getting 28 Days Later. But for the most part, these are, not, these are still not names you may really know besides... Murphy and and yeah it is like kind of amazing and they're all great like I don't think anybody is bad in this movie you know for being a bunch of like really having relatively little background in in film and whatnot so that's kind of well you know they wanted to go with unknowns quote unquote which is a thing that all filmmakers say especially when they're on a low budget and can't afford name actors right one of the interesting themes to me for the film was actually uh, Boyle contemplating on British society and the clash that is the individual's freedom dominating over the common good. And I think this actually has intensified since the advent of social media and all of these things after this film came out. Boyle said, We are told it's more to do with selling dreams, which I guess America takes a lot of pride in. But we sell these dreams to people so brilliantly now that we are far ahead of our capability of delivering them. So people become obsessed, thinking, I should be able to have that. I should be able to go where I want with very little money. The reality is, it doesn't work like that. You get tension, frustration builds, and violence comes in. Those are ideas we worked with, which I thought was very fascinating. So uh, they made a discreet choice not to show bodies in the opening, even though that would be more quote-unquote realistic. Uh, But the fact is, the emptiness feels more wrong than just the gore of a bunch of corpses. Mm -hmm. The chimps that they shot in the first, they had to go to Stuttgart, Germany, because it turns out there's only two troops of chimpanzees left in the world that can be legally filmed with. One is in L.A. and one is in Germany, so they had to go to Germany. Uh, it's it's because you're not allowed to uh, kill the chimps anymore after you can't film with them, so it's deemed too expensive to maintain a full showbiz troop. Huh. When they go to Killian's house and that zombie bursts through the door and kind of sets off the rest of the movie, uh, the actor initially busted ass and tripped over, uh, and they had to reshoot the scene. Huh. The shot in the stairwell that you loved when they're running up the stairs with the zombies coming behind them, uh, Selena's flashlight that she uses to light the scene... Because of the way digital video works, a standard flashlight would not get that solid beam that they wanted. So there was actually, uh, it was a spotlight that required a 50-pound battery pack that, you know, so while they're shooting that scene and they're running up the stairs, there's just a team of stagehands just carrying this thing running just as fast as them. (laughs) In a bit of uh, weird bittersweet news, uh, the scene where Brendan Gleeson kind of learns to trust the team and they crack open the creme de menthe and enjoy Christmas music together. Uh, that film, that scene was shot on 9-11, and everyone involved felt weird having a little party scene on that day. Weird. Weird. I can't believe they even shot that day, man. Low That's budget, crazy. tight schedules. Yeah. Uh, this is, I just love this story. Uh, initially, one of the most striking images in the movie is the roof of the uh, Brendan Gleeson, Hannah apartment, where they're gathering the rainwater, and you learn that it hasn't rained in 10 days, and they have to move with all the plastic uh, buckets around. Initially, the team, uh, the production team, got like a hundred buckets or so to, you know, showcase. You know, oh look how look how hard they're trying to survive. But on a big rooftop like that, it looked anemic. It didn't have the same impact that Danny Boyle wanted. So, in a screaming fury, he sent the team back out to get any vessel they could, uh, just to fill the roof with plastic and just color. The end result being a very notable uh, kind of continuity goof that several of the plastic things up on the roof are 
laundry baskets that are full of holes and would be shit and would be useless <laughs> right. for gathering rainwater anyway. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is just a weird side note, but I had to open a Wikipedia tab to figure out what it was. So I just, I feel entitled to share this. The statue that is kind of over, you know, kind of overtakes the mansion uh, when they get to the military guys is actually uh, a famous ancient Roman sculpture known as Laocoon. Uh, or Laocoon, or I can't pronounce it, but it's very old-timey, and it depicts a mythical uh, character from, like, the Enid and the Odyssey who is uh, fighting off in horror sea serpents as they kill his sons and is a uh, prototypical, is, is, is used as a, a archetypical depiction of human suffering outside of the uh, Christian uh, canon. It is it is described as a portrayal of, of senseless horror and suffering. <laughs> <laughs> which kind of uh, hits with the themes of what goes on in that mansion. Hmm. So initially, the movie as shot ends with uh, the death of Christopher Eccleston right. and that like uh, freeze frame as they crash the car through the gates. That was all they had shot. Uh, they then went to Fox and said, like, you know, what do you think? And they're like, we need a better ending. So they actually gave them more money to shoot the whole thing with the uh, planes and the help message or the hello message at the end of the movie. And a neat thing they did with the extra money is they switched to 35 millimeter film stock, mm. literally kind of communicating that the, the turmoil has eased and we're back ah. to a feel good movie, like happy. That's ending. Awesome. It, it's, it's literally telegraphing to the audience. That's right. This is a movie and this is a good ending. Right. As opposed to the grainy kind of instability of the DV cameras. Hmm. That's cool. So, Let's talk about it. The release, very briefly. I just want to say, budget of $5 million worldwide, it takes in $82 million. And that's mainly because... Mwah. That's mainly the success in the U.S. It actually only made like 6 point something million opening weekend in the UK, but in the US it caught on like crazy. People loved it. Well, that's because in England there's only three movie theaters and two of them have old cockney chimney sweeps guarding the entrance and you have to tell them a spicy limerick to get in. Of course. So we already talked about all of the films and just the whole revitalization of the genre and the fast moving zom zombie movement as well. 28 Weeks Later is coming off of the success of the first film, and it convinced the team to do a sequel. However, Danny Boyle and Alex Garland would end up focusing on their next film, Sunshine, which, by the way, Sunshine. Oofy doof. Sunshine. What? You don't think? So? I loved Sunshine. It is a mouthful. It is a fuck. It is a it is a hearty experience you gotta like it changes buckle in genres like multiple times i love sunshine <laughs> i think it's an amazing sci-fi movie i i, I it, appreciate it but at no point in the rest of my life will any of my friends be like hey man uh, we got a couple hours you mind if i just uh, pop on sunshine <laughs> really oh man i think it's great i think that's a killer killer sci-fi film that kind of becomes a horror movie after a while and then like a psychedelic 2001 type of thing it's i, I think it's fantastic but either way they're focusing on that so Boyle stays on as an executive producer, but this is now done by direction-wise Spanish filmmaker Juan Carlos Fresnadillo, which was uh, hired, who was hired by Danny Boyle, having been impressed by his first movie, Intacto, which is a magical realism thriller in which luck works like money and games of chance are played to eliminate the unlucky. This sounds like an anime, but uh... I know, right? It stars Max von Sydow, R.I.P. <laughs> I will. It is a little piece of a uh, doobity doo. Uh, Danny Boyle did make a slight directorial uh, contribution. He was doing second unit uh, work. Oh, cool! During that insane opening sequence where the main character is kind of like running away from the house, mm -hmm. and it's shot like it's it almost like saves the entire movie for its shortcomings because that opening sequence is. Brutal. And it revolves generally around a family in the U.S. around the time that the U.S. Army is declaring that the war against the infected has been won. And they're starting to rebuild. And then, of course, the shit hits the fan. And it's totally a new cast and story. The other actors were had other engagements as, as well. So really, it's a bit, a, a bit of a new turn completely. Garland and Boyle had a first draft of what the sequel would be. And it was going to be called 29 Days Later. And the premise was we were following a troop of British Marines attempting to rescue the Prime Minister and Queen of England. Ah, interesting. So this was released back in 2007. The, the, there has been talk, of course, of a new sequel. They've been talking about the possible sequel since the last film's release. 
And Boyle mentioned that he had a story in mind while promoting Sunshine. Later in 2011, Boyle said, it's 40-60 whether it happens or not. In 2015, Garland said he and Boyle and Andrew McDonald have been having serious combos about it and that it would probably be 28 months as opposed to 28 years later. As recently as June of 2019, Danny Boyle confirmed he and Garland had met to begin preparation on a third film. I do wonder, though, in light of the recent, I don't know, let's say epidemics, uh, if that will have an effect on whatever they were planning. But either way, even as far as also Disney acquired Fox. So oh, uh, that's true. Does that mean Christopher Eccleston's a Disney princess? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, but still 2019. I mean, that's super recent. So maybe they'll maybe we will get our third entry and maybe it will actually be done by the original team, which would be fucking awesome. Assuming Alex Garland doesn't uh, stop directing the smash sequel to the hit web series Devs. (laughs) I've heard Devs is really good. Do you want to hear Nick Offerman give a true detective speech every 20 minutes? Sure. Watch Devs. All right. I'm going to go check out Devs. Okay, I think that that is our episode on 28 Days Later. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fun romp through Nightmare Future Land. Uh, next week, I though, I am excited to get back to absolute escapism well, <laughs> with furry animals on an island or whatever. Uh, but <laughs> it is weird seeing like the, the mirror. It was weird seeing the mirror images of like, uh, you know, empty streets, uh, governments in, in crisis. Except in our reality, it's not like, a, a blood curdling rage virus. It's right. just like it's a quiet, real bad pneumonia. Yeah, it's like a, <laughs> like just a very thing. contagious pneumonia. Right. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. You can check us out if you want to support us further. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You can find me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. Find me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. And uh, of course, once again, got to push that Patreon. We release bonus episodes every week. So, you know, you're folding laundry, you're going on your daily walks, you're doing your business. Get some extra whiz brew in your face. Hell yeah. And always remember, never stop whizzing. And keep on bruising. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.